Hello, welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Andrew. And this is Caleb. Welcome to episode 18, Native American Technology. Uh, now, Andrew, this is an episode that we actually intended to do very early in the podcast when we first launched it. But after spending about four months just trying to lay some groundwork so we can get into the narrative, we felt like that we were stuck and stalled on making progress with the podcast, and we wanted to get into some of the linear history. Here we are, uh, 13 episodes in? 18 plus our, leg our uh, legend episodes. No kidding, man. So this is our 21st show. 21 episodes in. So now we're going to take a quick step back, and we're going to tell you some things that we learned about technology and everyday life for Northeastern Native Americans. And this will kind of help you understand a little more where these people are coming from and how they go about their daily lives. We're going to be covering several hundred years and remember that technology changes over time. And so we'll specify how this style of everything has evolved over time. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine if uh, aliens in the future come down and uh, look at our technology from 2005 and think that we're all walking around with primitive iPhone ones and things like that? We do adapt as time goes on to much superior technology. And the Native Americans were no different. Yep. So to start off, Caleb, we're going to talk about longhouses. Probably the central core of the Iroquoian people was their distinctiveness of having longhouses. Other Northeastern people had longhouses, but the Iroquois we mentioned before, they kept that as their metaphor for how their five and then six nations worked together in unity. And we already talked a lot about the longhouse role in their clans and in their nations and the symbology between it, but this week we're going to focus more on how they were built. Mm -hmm. So what are they made out of, Caleb? Well, I imagine they're made out of wood. Very good. Now, the interesting thing about longhouses is they're made out of many different kinds of wood. Because to start off with, you've got to build a frame. And to get a frame, you're going to need something to frame it with. And the kind of wood that they tended to use was a wood called cedar. Cedar is a conifer tree. And the special thing about cedar wood is it's very rot resistant. Isn't that right? That's right. There's actually even records in the Bible... Of biblical times, uh, cedar would be used for the Jews to frame their temple. And it was, it's a fairly cheap wood. It grows in abundance. But yes, there's some chemical element in cedar that makes it very rot resistant compared to even hardwoods. And even when it gets wet. And so the thing is, they would dig post holes to set up the frame to put these cedar poles in. And even though these poles are sitting in the ground, Cedar can last, how long is it? Is it like upwards of, could be 100 years sometimes for some poles mm -hmm. before they totally rot away? So it's very rot resistant, very good and solid and sturdy for building up a frame. So that's the one thing you want to start with, is finding a cedar tree that's nice and tall and straight, chopping it down, and then setting it in the post hole. Now at this time, Caleb, they really didn't have chainsaws, so what would they primarily use to fell the trees? Stone axes? That's pretty much what they got. Now, the thing is, we're going to talk a little bit later on in how they used flint, but it's hard to think of that stone axes would actually be efficient at chopping down a tree, but when we talk in a little bit about flint tools, Caleb will explain just how sharp and effective that they could be. Not as effective as metal tools, but still they did the job. Now, when they're framing the longhouse, they also take other limbs, and there were two styles of longhouse. They had the kind that could bend, 
they would get the wood and bend it over the top. So think of it like a rectangle. And then the top was like a dome shape. And then they would use a different kind of wood to do the sides and to do the top shingles. And that wood was elm. The interesting thing about elm trees is they have a very thin bendable bark. And so they would use the elm bark, as I mentioned, as the siding panels and as the rafters. Now the way that they would remove the elm bark from a tree is there was one of two ways. First one was you could get somebody to climb up into a tree and take your stone tool and pretty much cut a seam right down the middle. And then you would literally just peel it off. You would want to make sure that you find something that uh, didn't have a lot of branches in the way or a lot of knobs or holes in it, but something that you could just get straight down. Yeah, because if you picture this bark is going to basically work as shingles and siding for the house, every single time you have a branch or not, that's something that you're going to have to try and plug and fill. Mm -hmm. So if you could find a nice veneer elm tree that maybe goes up 20 feet with no branches, you could peel the bark all the way around with no holes in it. Mm -hmm. And then it comes off as a single large sheet. And they could fold it up or roll it up, just like we would wallpaper. Well, if, if you ever think of bark that you've peeled off a tree yourself, a small piece, and you can basically, it's very breakable. Uh, but one technique they had is you could actually soak these big sheets mm -hmm. of bark in water yep. for, I'm not sure how long, you know, not too long, probably a week or so. And that would make it so you could form it to the roof. And then as it dried, it would become hard again, but it would be in the right curve for your roof. And it was durable enough to act as shingles, but then at the same time, it was thin enough that they would actually stitch it. So they would take a needle and with leather or other kinds of string, and they would stitch them together so that they could be tight. To fill in the seams, because, well, it's great you lay it across, but water finds a way in. So you've got to make that water tight. So we're used to using things like tar, uh, the colonials would be anyway, uh, when they come over. The Native Americans didn't have tar. Well, not to say they didn't. They, there were, are some records that they had some oil and things like that. The Oneida, way before colonials, we have records of them finding oil. But basically, they use something different for yep. the tar. They would use pine pitch. And what's amazing about this is, I just put up my Christmas tree, Caleb, and pine trees are extremely sticky. You ever climb a pine tree and you get sap and mm -hmm. stuff all over you? Well, the resin from a pine tree is incredibly tactile. If it gets a wound in it, it will form like these crystals of amber on it. You, you go out in the woods. If any of you people are city folk and don't understand what happens to a tree, it bleeds. And it bleeds out this sticky sap in pine trees especially. And so they'll, they'll kind of look like crystals. And so the Native Americans would break those off, uh, just finding it naturally. They didn't need to harm the tree because they were already there. And they could put it into a pot and boil it. And it would turn into a liquid. And then they would just add a little ash or maybe a little grass to help tighten it up. And then you've got a pot of pitch. And then you can take a brush or a stick and you can use it to slide into the in-between whatever you're trying to seal. Now I mentioned that there were different styles of longhouses. Um, the facts are kind of fuzzy, but the Seneca people had more of an A-frame style house, what we would predominantly think. And I asked the people at Ganondigan about this and I said, well, did it change after contacts with the European? And the person there told me, that the Seneca always built their longhouses in A-frame style. I don't know how reliable that is, but that's what they told me. 
Um, so you had the, the dome style, and then you also had the A-frame style. They said that the A-frame style made more sense because you could get more headspace and more storage space. And it does make sense from the standpoint of what would be easier. I mean, it would be a lot easier just to put two branches up at a point than to try to bend branches and bend bark over it. But mind you, whenever we look at any of these pictures that the early colonists drew of the longhouses, I couldn't find any in an A-frame. So that would be really interesting if just the Seneca were known for doing that. If you do happen to be in western New York and you're in Victor, New York, you can go to the Gennett again and they have an authentic 17th century replica and it's done in the A-frame style. It's very massive, very nice, and it's fully furnished with all natural, handmade, period-type stuff. Now, at the end of the longhouses, at first they had the two doors. We mentioned there's the eastern door and the western door that they thought of themselves Mohawk and Seneca, same deal. They have two doors on each side. Predominantly, they would have leather skins for flaps to keep the wind out. And then they would have a small porch on each end with more leather flaps, kind of like a, a mudroom. Yeah. Just an area where you could go in and out and it was an extra buffer zone of air to keep the cold out. This would give you a good place to shake the snow off after coming in in the winter so your wife doesn't yell at you when you come into the longhouse. Or your clan mother, your clan aunt, or <laughs> all your other wife's relatives that you're staying with. So that's longhouses. I also wanted to talk really quick about their palisades. In some of our episodes, we talked about some battles that have taken place at longhouses and how they had the palisades. And if you don't know what a palisade is, just think of it like a wooden wall. Not exactly like a stockade because it was more just natural wood versus cut poles that were set in. But it was predominantly thin trees and they would dig post holes and then they would fill in in between with brush around the base and fill in other thinner poles. So that it's not like it's something you could dig and get through. It was a, a pretty thick fortification. And don't think of it as a single ring that they wrapped around it. They kind of made it like a maze, right, Caleb? Right. Um, sometimes they made it like a coil and they made this passageway really small on purpose so that you couldn't just march 50 people down Main Street. It was just thin enough to get you and whatever you were carrying through at a time. And that was of a defensive nature. That's right. Just like the longhouse only having a, a door on each end, you could have only a couple warriors or men protect the longhouse if there was ever a raid. It was the same concept for their Palisade walls. You basically had a gate. It was an open gate. It was just small enough to let one person in. But if you imagine having 10 warriors inside, uh, all with spears around this one small hole that only one person can get in, it doesn't matter if they're attacking with 50 people. They won't be able to get in because mm -hmm. they'll be all bottlenecked. And somebody's getting stabbed. It <laughs> doesn't matter. In addition, they had catwalks that would go around, and they would also have hollowed-out logs that would collect rainwater. So that way, if somebody got the bright idea to build a brush fire up against your wooden village, they could just douse it with water and put it out right away. And then again, with the catwalk, you can keep guard, and you can pick them off with arrows as needed. I would like to point out that not at all times and not in all villages were they palisaded. We see over time that villages change depending on what was going on. When we first come in contact with the Europeans, the villages tend to be larger villages that are palisaded. And then 
over time they split up into smaller villages and they may or may not be palisaded depending on if it's a peacetime. We mentioned that villages move every so many years and if it's a time of peace and especially after the Iroquois have expanded to some point they feel pretty at ease and don't need to worry about having palisades. And also uh, if a tribe has been shrunken by war or disease they just might not have the manpower or resources to spend years building up a nice palisade wall around their entire village. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the village of Ganondagan and Victor, at one point they say that it did have a palisade, but then as we get onto in a later episode when Denonville invades, they say that there wasn't a palisade. So at different times, for different reasons, they did or did not have it. Why don't you talk about tools and tool making, Caleb? Okay, now this is something that I've always been curious about, so it's nice to finally do some reading into it. But we talk about them cutting trees down. We talk about them peeling bark with knives before metal was available to them and what they used. And, you know, we always picture them using a stone knife, flint knife. But I didn't really appreciate how effective these could be. And uh, I didn't really think of that until I felt how sharp a piece of flint or a piece of obsidian can be simply by breaking it. So the basic concept is you take a piece of flint or obsidian. Uh, flint is very common around here in western New York. I've never seen obsidian, but apparently that's around here too. And you, you do a technique called flint napping. And this is basically a way to control break the stone. Flint can't be sharpened like metal, where you just grind it down to a fine edge. As you break the flint, it naturally has an edge that is nearly razor sharp. And it's so hard that it keeps the edge for a long time, especially if you're just cutting things like wood. Hmm. Now, this was a technique that is easy to start to learn how to do, but it takes a while to master it. There's some very fine techniques to get just the right edge, and the bigger the knife, the the harder that would be. Also, you could be starting a very nice blade and then you, you nap the flint wrong and you crack the whole thing. I guess I'm making an arrowhead today instead. Now, flint, like I said, it could be razor sharp, but there was it was you were very limited on what you could do with it. You could only cut straight lines with it. If you tried cutting anything crooked or trying to uh, twerk anything with it, it would crack. But as long as you kept it straight, the molecules in the stone hold up just as strong as, it, as any metal. Hmm. So you could scrape down a piece of bark all the way down the tree as long as you kept the flint straight. So you weren't doing any zigzags as you were nope, going No down. zigzags, no, no trying to uh, cut anything out with it, You know, sticking the tip in and pulling anything out. It couldn't be used like that. So you would get your piece of flint, you'd get it nice and sharp, and then you could fasten it to something. Uh, there were a couple things that were very common. One of them would be a jawbone to a deer. If Andrew and I are both hunters, so we've seen deer jawbones before and stuff, we've come across them as we've been hunting and looked at them. But if you ever look at a jawbone for any animal when it's been dead and it's just the bone, it's got a hollow spot in it. And... So you would break the jawbone off about four inches from the end, and then you have that hollow little slip that you could just stick a piece of flint right down into, and it would hold it tight. And all you'd have to apply is a little bit of glue or a, cup, a little rawhide band to put around it. Another thing, antlers. Antlers worked great for that. 
Or you could just carve a piece of wood and stick it into it. And it's the basic concept for everything as far as axes and tomahawks and knives. All, all, of, their, yeah, all of their fine cutting tools were made out of these types of stone. So to fasten all of these weapons and tools, do you even know what rawhide is? I mean, I always heard Leather? That. I always heard the song, rawhide. Yeah, it's leather, but you know, you, you dry it out in such a way and then you cut it into really thin strips. And that could work as your string. It would be a little better than using uh, twine for something if you wanted it's gonna to hold up. It's yes, gonna it's going to hold longer. off a lot longer than just using a rope or twine. So you would use you would use leather for that. Just cut it in thin strips and wrap it around your tools. So let's talk about another famous tool that they would use: tool slash weapon. It's called a tool when it's peacetime and a weapon when it's wartime, and that's the bow and arrow. The most iconic thing whenever anybody thinks about Indians is bows and arrows. Which is funny because almost all cultures throughout the world use bow and arrows. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) But let's talk about how they made them. They could be used from, you know, all different types of trees. But there were certain ones that tended to make better bows, just like today. Uh, Cherry, ash, oak, hickory was a big one. And uh, also you could even make a bow out of animal parts like long animal bones and things like that they would be flexible enough where you could use them but i tried to make a bow once and it didn't go very well I, did you, you know, make it out of pine wood or something I, I basically cut a sapling and tried putting a string on it there's a little more to it than that uh you need a, a strip of wood out of a bigger piece you can't just use a whole limb it, it doesn't have the the tension or the strength or the power to to launch an arrow so if you took hickory, you could, for one thing, you wouldn't want to use a fresh green tree. You would want to age it. So you could take this log, you could, you could either cut down a dead tree or you could cut down a live one and age it. And what that does is over a year, all of the moisture works its way out of that and it just makes it better wood so it doesn't dry or crack as soon as you make the bow while you're using it. And uh, another thing I was thinking, how the heck do you make an arrow string for this? One way that they could do it is by making fiber twine. But I imagine that didn't work very well. But that was a way they could make cordage and they could use it for a bow. And a common thing for that would be milkweed or other plants or strips from saplings. You could take the fibers and roll them and make string out of it. But the more common way to do it that really dominated bow and arrow making is using tendons and stomach lining or or rawhide like we mentioned you could cut the leather really thin and braid it or you could take stomach lining or you know like intestine and things like that which is soft and squishy but if you spin it and dry it out it becomes very hard yeah we always hear about the the violin player making the uh strings out of the cat intestine yeah that's right same thing it's got the really fine tension on it and so you stretch that out and twist it And you've got a practically unbreakable string. Mm -hmm. Now, like we said, you could use bows for hunting or for war. So just like today with our firearms, you'll have different bullets for different types of activities, we'll call them. Mm -hmm. I think that we mentioned this in our Morning Wars episode. Did we? How they had many different types of broadheads? Yeah. So they had one that was primarily used for hunting game. And then another one you said that was used in warfare where the tip would break off. Yes. And they also had other ones with barbs that you could use for fishing or other things like that. You could use some, if you were hunting a bear, you would want an arrowhead that would get a lot of penetration. 
so it would be a very thin, sharp broadhead, as opposed to a different mammal, you might want something with a bigger edge on it that you can get more of a cut, more blood. So they, they had many different styles of broadheads, all depending on the techniques that they were going to use them for. So let's shift focus really quick, Caleb, and let's talk about transportation. Obviously, predominantly, they walked and used their legs everywhere, but they did not have any kind of vehicle transportation. No carts, no pack animals, no horses. They didn't ride moose or anything like that? Like, no, contrary to popular belief, they did not ride any moose. <laughs> did, did people actually think that? No. Oh. Actually, that's not even popular belief. <laughs> okay. That's just your pure imagination from probably some... Lord of the Rings. I forgot about that. That was not in the book, was it? <laughs> I don't think I so. I don't think the Elven King rode a moose. And neither did the Native Americans. They did not. Because moose are dangerous. They will kill you. <laughs> You ever read The Hatchet? Yeah. Moose tries to kill the kid. I'm getting off topic. We're talking about transportation. Predominantly, they would use canoes for their transportation, and they would use an intricate river and creek system and lake system to transport most of their ways. Now, when I think of a canoe, you probably are, generally when you go out, you're in a fiberglass canoe or some kind of light aluminum canoe mm -hmm. or maybe you have a wooden canoe that was factory made or maybe you got some great uncle that actually built a wooden canoe but i guarantee you you really didn't use an iroquois canoe because the iroquois canoes are very unique even among native americans the interesting thing about iroquois canoes is they were made out of elm bark predominantly versus other native americans mainly used birch bark canoes and so we're going to explain what the difference is and why that's a big deal yeah and the pros and cons for each mm -hmm. with a elm bark canoe remember elm bark is the same thing we use to make the longhouses and so same deal to make an elm bark canoe you're going to try and get a big sheet of elm bark and you would use a single sheet to make the canoe because as caleb mentioned it's kind of hard to get two pieces together to make a canoe you're looking at some real issues. So you want to find that nice tall tree with no branches and no holes, and you want to climb up there and skim the bark down. Or another way is you could gently lower the tree down, but you got to be really careful when you're getting it down because you don't want it to crash on anything and rip that bark. And also, if you picture the size of tree that you'll need to get a big piece of bark like that, and if you want to gently lower the tree down, Picture taking a stone axe to a tree that's 10 feet round and then lower, gently lowering it down. You've got to have a surrounding area where the trees are going to break its fall. But So generally speaking, you've got to have some guy shimmy up there and cut it straight down. Now once you've got your giant huge piece of elm bark, you want, they would fold it over like you're making an envelope and then they would crimp each side. So crimping is where you kind of tweak it so that it's like up at a 45 degree angle so that it can cut through the water. And they would use this by putting logs underneath just to raise it up on the ends a little bit. So picture you've got your little V or U shape, fold it over, and then in the middle they would put wood to build the frame to keep it in the shape. And then the aforementioned pine tree tar that you've used would use to seam up everything make it watertight, any little hole that you may have gotten there, you get that in, and then you also use it to get the seam going so that you can fold it together. 
Then in the floor lining, you could put more bark or wood down in the bottom because this elm bark is not that thick and you don't want to step in the boat and put a hole in it immediately. And so once you've got your floorboards down and you've got your support boards going across as a rib, you can sit down in the boat with you and your friends. Now, the unique thing about elm bark canoes, Caleb, and why they were so efficient is you could make an elm bark canoe that could hold like 30 to 40 people. As big as a sheet you can cut from the tree, as long as you can get, that's how big a canoe you can make. And so when we're talking about when they get, especially when the trade picks up with the beaver wars going on and they're transporting a lot of merchandise and furs, think of these things like double tractor trailers barreling down the street. You've got these massive long canoes that can hold all these people or a few people and a whole lot of cargo. At the same time, it's really efficient to have a canoe that you maybe if you're on a war party, you could fit 30 or 40 guys in a canoe and you could transport a lot more people. That being said, you could always make the smaller sedan or a compact car style and make a small canoe for you and your family or maybe just a canoe for you and a friend. You can As big as the bark you want to use is how you can make a canoe. And it was a lot of work and a lot of planning, but if you knew what you were doing, they could build a canoe in a day. It was that efficient. Now, we mentioned that other Native Americans use birch bark canoes, right, Caleb? That's right. And birch bark canoes would be made in a, a similar fashion, uh, but there were some real benefits and downsides to these. We, I mean, we, he mentioned how you could carry a lot more people, and they were a lot, these elm bark canoes were a lot stronger. But the birch bark canoes were a lot faster, and they were a lot faster because they were a lot lighter. Mm -hmm. And we actually have some writings of some Jesuits with some Huron who are in birch bark canoes, and they escape from the Iroquois because they have they just it's just known they have superior as far as speed canoes to the Iroquois. But at the same time, they're going to be a lot smaller, and therefore you can get a lot less people in it. So. Again, it, just think of it naturally. If you've got a big boat and a little boat, the little boat can maneuver a lot easier. Also, if you picture doing any sort of trade down rivers with any sort of rapids, you hit one tiny rock with a birch bark canoe and it could do some serious damage to it because it's a very light, soft wood. But an elm bark would be a much more durable canoe. Now, have you heard of portaging, Caleb? Yeah, actually, now that you mention it, I've done some canoeing up in the Adirondacks region. And there's this track of lakes called the Chain Lakes. Now, the Chain Lakes are not completely chained together. There's actually some really low spots and some spots that you can only get through depending on the time of year. So there are some portages where you have to get up and walk on a canoe road to connect to the next lake. Mm -hmm. And so, same thing. The Native Americans had what were called these portage roads. And so, for example, we have the Oswego River. We had mentioned this in our Champlain episode. The Oswego River comes up and it connects and it can go into Lake Oswego. And there's this portage road that goes across there some miles on the other side. And then you can get to the Mohawk River. Now the Oswego River flows west down into Lake Ontario, but the Mohawk River flows east down into the Hudson River. And so between going those two ways, you could connect all the way to the Great Lakes system, or you could connect to the Hudson River system to go to New York City. But... To get between there, you got to get the portage, and so you got to get out of your canoe. You got to have everybody carry everything, and you got to carry these canoes those miles to get to the next place. So that might be another benefit to having a birch bark compared to an elm. Mm -hmm.
But at the same time, that short distance would make it very strategic spot to have if you could control that spot. And we're going to see as we get into the French and Indian War and the Revolutionary War, the British are going to build forts here on these portage roads on purpose to control the flow of traffic going up and down. There's some other famous portages. Uh, one of the most famous is Niagara Falls. I don't know if you know this, but you cannot canoe up Niagara Falls. Not going to work. Not yet, anyway. Well, if you want to try that, go right ahead. What they would have to do is when they came to Lake Ontario, they would have to get out and portage up beyond the falls and way beyond the falls mm -hmm. because we've mentioned the point of no return before. It's not like you can just get to the foot of the falls and then go up. So you would have to follow this portage trail up and then you could connect to the Niagara River to get to Lake Erie. So they had a system down for doing it. There was one other kind of canoe they used, Caleb, and that was a dugout canoe. Imagine these took a lot longer to do. Well, you say that, but um, yeah, they probably took more than a day. A dugout canoe is what we think of when we think of just a log. So you got a log, and you're still going to style it so that it's got angles on the side so it can go through water. And then you would hollow out the middle so that you could sit down in it. Uh, they could use tools to dig it out, or they would use controlled fires to try and burn out the middle of it and still keep the sides fine. Yeah, you start a fire, and then that becomes like a charcoal, only about an inch deep, and you can just chip out the charcoal, mm -hmm. and, and then, then set another fire and mm -hmm. go down to the depth you need. Yep. Now, have you ever tried to carry a log before? Yes. Is it easy? Well. Have you tried to carry a log the size <laughs> of a freaking canoe? Uh, no. I have done some tabor tossing before with the Boy Scouts, uh, but nothing the size of a canoe, no. Yes. I imagine that they're heavy as anything. These kinds of canoes, you are not going to portage. You're not going to be carrying this thing up a mountain to get around Niagara Falls. These dugout canoes were primarily used on lakes or on short river systems just to go to the edge of rapids or a waterfall, and you would leave it there, walk where you needed to go, and then you could take it back. Mm -hmm. These were kind of like water taxis that you would just leave and go. If you think about, for those of you that don't know the Finger Lakes region, a lot of these lakes are more than 15 miles long, some of them more like 20, but they're only about a mile wide. So if you had a village in the middle of the lake, it could take you a couple days to walk around to the other side of the lake. But if you just had a dugout canoe that you could just take across that one mile, leave there, somebody else can take it and come back, it would be a lot easier than... Mm -hmm. So those were the, the three styles of canoes that they predominantly used. Uh, I would like to mention also that uh, these dugout canoes were very efficient. Certain Native Americans in the Northeast have these legends that they used to travel to Hawaii from like Oregon and Seattle in these dugout canoes. And people said, blah, 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 whatever. Well, in 1978, a guy named Tauchner and two of his friends took the, one of these dugout canoes. They called it the Orenda too. Keyword there, if you remember what Orenda means. And it was made out of a Douglas fir. And they put sails on it. And they sailed from Vancouver, Canada to Hawaii. Which, to give you an idea of how far that is, that's 4,500 miles or a little over 7,200 kilometers. It took them two months, but they did it. Wow. Native Americans knew how to use canoes. If you remember back when we talked about how Native Americans got here, we mentioned the boat theory. Mentioning how people used to think they came on the land bridge, but now more and more they're thinking that they came over 
hopping the coast down by taking small boats could have been that they used these dugout canoe style things because they're very sturdy and they're not going to sink. Now, Caleb, to talk about a culture, you really got to talk about what they wear and how do you make clothing? Because that's a very important aspect of Iroquois culture. If you ever see the way that they design their clothing, it's just incredibly intricate and amazing. And it's changed over time, but let's talk about how they made it pre-European contact. That's a great point, Andrew. And uh, I think it's interesting to think about the colonial traders coming over and how all of the Iroquois wanted the linens from Europe, but the Europeans wanted the furs from the Iroquois. They looked, and uh, you'll see that a lot of the, the traders and the people that lived amongst them switched to deerskin clothing because it was so much warmer and efficient and waterproof compared to linens that they would be wearing. Yeah, if you ever watch the old Davy Crockett or Daniel Boone cartoons, what are they wearing? They're wearing leather deerskin shirts with the little frills on them, and they're wearing moccasins, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, you see the Native Americans wearing these really bright, intricate dresses and breeches. So let's talk about how they tanned. And there's some really interesting techniques that are still used today by people that do tanning as a hobby. And I would like to point out, if you are in California... And you think that we're talking about going out under the sun to lay your body out to brown yourself up or going down to Zoom tan? That is not what we're talking about. Oh, I didn't about. even think to clarify that. <laughs> I think that we really want to make sure that our audience understands when we talk about tanning, we are talking about animal hides and not making yourself ready for <laughs> Jillian's birthday party. <laughs> so, first thing you do once you harvest the animal, and you can use these techniques for any type of fur-bearing animal. But as we've said in past episodes, the most common animal they would use for clothing is deer. And that's because you would get a lot of it and it was very efficient in, in a large commodity. It would take a lot of raccoons to make a coat out of it, but you could use a few deer to make one. And I don't know if I'd like a raccoon coat. So after skinning the deer, uh, it's very important that you scrape every single little bit of fat and meat off it. When you get your hide, for those of you that are hunters, you hang it up. It peels off the animal, but there's always little bits of fat and blood vessels and little things left over. And they're very soft and smooth when you take it off, but those dry and harden very quickly. I remember skinning a rabbit once, and I hung it up, and the next day it was like cardboard. You could like bang it on the table. And that's because I didn't do this fleshing technique where you would take a sharp bone or a, a knife and you would scrape every single little bit of everything that was not the hide off the pelt. At the same time, you would be very careful because if you put a hole in it, that's gonna be you're going to have to sew it and patch it and it would just make it not as useful. So you wanted to get every single little bit off and this could be very time consuming. And if you ever see in a picture of old times of people with the, the furs up on a rack or up on wooden posts, this is what they're doing. They're putting it out there. They're not necessarily putting it out there dry. They're putting it out there so it's nice and open and they can scrape all of the meat and fat off it. And they may tie ropes to it as well to make the tension tight so that it's easier to scrape, right? Yes. So once you've done that, and this could take hours, you're going to want to wash your fur. Now, a lot of deer clothing you wouldn't keep the fur on it. They would just want the leather. So here's where you decide if you're going to keep the fur or not. 
If you're going to keep the fur, this is where you would wash the fur and comb it. Get any ticks and any dirt and anything out of that and wash it and then dry it. Or if you want to get rid of the fur, you could let these soak in a creek. I was wondering that because the fur is supposed to stay on, so how are you getting it off? It's not like you can pull it out and it's not like you can burn it off. So Yeah, it's not like plucking a chicken where you just grab it and rip it off. So you soak it in the creek and then after a while you can go and start plucking it out and then the water will just keep cleaning and washing all the fur away. That way you don't just have this horrible, horrible mess, mess of hair everywhere. So then once you've got your your hide and all the fur is off it and it's been scraped clean, here's kind of the gross part. And this is called the braining point. If you're not grossed out yet and you've got a weak stomach, uh, you can skip ahead a few minutes. <laughs> but this is very knowledgeable and this is how they did it. And so if you want to learn... And, and you're, you're this not... is the most important part. It's like you could do all these other things and wind up with a terrible piece of leather. But the braining is what really makes it into the good soft leather that can be bent and worked into clothing. Now what is, you always hear brain is, is full of what? There's lots of cholesterol, fat. Cholesterol, fat, that's right. Uh, fat, cholesterol is basically, as far as working into clothing, it's just like fat. Cholesterol is a fatty substance and your brain is full of it. So if you take the brain of the animal and you mix it with warm water, you can mush it into basically what looks like a strawberry shake. I wouldn't recommend drinking no. it. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend drinking it, but that's what I've read it looks like. So you mush this up into a brain milkshake with warm water, and then you just pour it on the skin and you start working it in with your fingers. Hmm. And this, the leather will soak it into it, and it won't completely evaporate like oil would i mean it'll stay in there for a long time and it will work deep into the leather which will make it so it can be bent every which way and direction now after you've worked all the brain into the hide you'll let it sit there for a while you'll hang it up and let it just do its thing let it work let it slowly start to evaporate and work its way into the hide now would you leave this in direct sunlight would you keep this inside your house could it be hung anywhere it could basically be hung everywhere you want to avoid water still at this point, so you wouldn't want to just leave it out in the rain. But yeah, anywhere that's dry and not you don't want to bake it either yet. So just let it work its thing in natural, cool, dry place, I guess we'll call it. Uh, then once this is done, this is where the softening. There's like five different stages between cleaning and braining and softening. and Now that it's been hanging for a while, now is when you're going to try to take all the excess brain brain paste off of the hide. So you're going to take your, your skinning tool out and just start slightly scraping all the excess and you can use rags and things like that to get as much as you can off it. Now are you doing this on both sides of the leather? If, yes. If you want this as leather, then yes you would. If you were doing this and you wanted a, like a fur coat, you would just do this on the one side and then keep the fur mm -hmm. on the outside. For a lot of clothing you want leather that you can sew. And that's tough to do when you keep the fur on. But there were uses for fur as well. Mm -hmm. Hats, but, mittens. Yes, but the majority of their clothes, or lining for your boots and things mm -hmm. like that, you just do it inside out, and then you have a nice fur lining. That does sound nice. It does. That's what those Ugg boots are based off. Did you know that? No. Yeah, Ugg boots, they do them in lamb skin. Yeah, I knew but, that. But and lamb is very similar to yes, deer skin. But they're actually based 
off of the Native American winter boots, which Ooh. were made out of deer skins. Oh. That's that's what they I'd rather off. wear that than Uggs. <laughs> it took took a few hundred years, but they said, hey, why don't we make these? And then they sold a gajillion of them for 200 bucks a pop. And now every single millennial girl has that a drink of Starbucks and an iPhone in their hand. They actually have two pairs. They have one that they wear like out realistically, and then they have one they keep in pristine condition. That's what I notice. I digress. A softening technique they would do would be like to put up a cable or a rope and then you could have one person on each side of the, the hide just start working it back and forth over it. And this just helps soften up the leather. Basically, you start scraping the leather and opening it up. Now, when you say cable or string, what do you mean? How, how are they motioning this? I mean, picture a clothesline and putting a blanket over it. Okay. And then you've got a person on each side of the okay, clothesline. Okay, you're going back and forth. Yeah, and you're just teeter-tottering back and forth. Okay. Running that line across the leather. Okay. I'm glad you asked that so I could kind of give a description of what's happening. So this brings us to one of the last steps in making good quality deer leather or any type of tanning, uh, but that's the smoking. And this has a very important role. This very important step makes the leather basically waterproof. And how you would do this, say you have one half fur, one half leather. So what you would do is you would fold it so all the fur is on the inside and the leather is on the outside, and then you just wrap a cord around the top, making it into like a little... Like a ball? A bag, almost. Okay. You know, there'd be a little hole where you could see the fur down in, but it would be all sealed. Kind of like Santa's sack or something? Yeah, it would look like a sack. And then you would hang it on a tripod and have a small fire. A lot of times they would dig a hole and start the fire in the hole and then just have the smoke come up and go around the bag. Interesting. And... Uh, you had to be careful because you didn't want to burn the leather. No, especially the bottom directly over it because I yeah. can imagine, I mean, you put a candle up and you put your hand a foot over it, your yeah. hand will burn. So you had, you had to really control this fire so that it was just getting the smoke and the heat with the smoke would start to shrink the molecules, you know, dry it out lightly. And it would pull those molecules together and make them so tight that water won't seep into the leather. So water could still stick on it, but it could just be brushed off after that. And this wouldn't take long. You could smoke it, and it would only take about 40 minutes to do. And then as soon as that's done, you can lay it out to stretch, and it's it's ready to be used for clothing. That still sounds like a long, tedious process. And that's just to get it ready so that you can turn it into clothing or robes yeah. or blankets or whatever you wanted to do. So after this, this is where the, the artistic ability comes into it. And I'd encourage anybody to go just Google like Iroquoian leather coats and jackets. Once you start to see the beadwork and the colors and, you know, it's just very beautiful clothing. The tassels alone are just amazing. And you can buy these handmade. Uh, they'll cost you a pretty penny because of the time and technique and artistry that goes into it. But you can go to a online or go to a Native American arts fair and buy them. If I had the money, I'd like one, but uh, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Now, I wanted to talk about one of the most interesting things that I've learned since I started doing this podcast, Caleb, and that's trail trees. And I had actually never even heard of these until a month or so ago. So picture yourself. You're out walking in the wilderness. There's no billboards. There's no signs that say this many miles to Canadagua. There's no thing that says pit stop here or a gas station here. You're just walking out in the woods 
and you think you're on the trail, but you're not really sure. You may have come this way before, but you can't really remember. Well, the amazing thing is they would fashion trees in a certain shape and get them to grow a certain way to mark on a trail where something was. Generally speaking, it would be where a fording is or where a portage is or maybe where fresh water is located or it could be which way it is to a village. So what they would do is they would choose a tree mainly from the hardwood family, usually oak or maple, something that's flexible when it's young and then it's going to stay permanent once it grows. And they wanted to make sure that the thing was up high enough so that you could see it especially if you're getting if you're on a trail and there's three feet of snow you want this marker to be above ground so that you can see it even when there's snow you want it to be in a prominent location so that if you're traveling up a river or a lake you can see it from the shore and it's very distinctive so that it just pops out at you and so what they would do is they would bend over these saplings usually in an arch and then they could secure them to the ground with a stake and then maybe tie a stone around it or use a leather strap or a vine or anything and then they'd let the branch grow to the side and then let a new branch grow straight up because as you know when a tree branch is down generally you're going to get one of these suckers that grow straight up and then they would kind of cut off the end so they've got the tree growing sideways and they got the thing going up the top but then they would cut off the end to have like a little knob at the end where the original trunk was and this knob depending on the shape of how they made it would signify different things different nations would have different meanings for each one. So you would just look at it and be like, oh, the knob pointing down means water, or the knob split means this, or the knob this way means that. And it could vary based on wherever you were. It's amazing to think the hindsight to build these, because if you're starting with a sapling, it could take a generation to get them to the point where they could be usable trail markers. And a really amazing thing with these is there are still some of these around that are hundreds of years old. Yeah, um, the window is closing on how many will be left. But if you think oak trees can live hundreds of years. Um, now, if you're going out in the woods and you see a tree that's growing sideways and looks kind of weird, it could just be that the tree grew that way. It could be it fell over and then grew up or something fell on it. So they do grow naturally that way. But the distinctive knob on the end is really what gives it away, something that was that was cut man-made. Um, but these do exist and you can Google images of them. And so if you find one of these, you know, you can still ask an expert to see if it really is something. Um, because if you did find something like that, it would truly be amazing. But they, they are out there and they do still exist. And so it's, a, it's forgotten history that's just sitting in our woods that we don't know about. Okay, Andrew, if you don't mind, I would like to mention wampum beads real quick. Go right ahead. In our second episode, we went into wampum and how it was used, but we really didn't know or talk much about how it's made and the amount of time that goes into making one single wampum bead. I think we mentioned that the purple beads were made from quahog shells mm-hmm. down northeast. Now, what you would do, you would open the shell up, lay it flat, and then you would hit it a few times with a flat rock. You wouldn't want to like pound it into dust or anything, but you'd want to flatten it out until you get about you know 15 different good-sized, maybe one-inch chunks. Then you would take a very small stick with a little piece of quartz on the end of it, and that would be your drill, and you could spin that around and make a hole in it. And drill straight down through the cylinder. Right, th- drill right down through the shell. 
then you would wind up with you know a inch or half inch piece of shell with a hole in it here's the tedious part now you're gonna just start grinding that down all the way around all the way around until you wind up with a bead which is about the size of a pea maybe and maybe I like to think of it like macaroni only like straight so picture a piece of macaroni the thin stuff before you cook it you know that thin little strip mm-hmm. that's roughly about the diameter you're talking about probably even a little bit smaller and these belts could be several feet long uh, some of them I think the George Washington belt is in excess of 20 feet or wow. something like that maybe it's 12 feet but still absolutely yeah. ridiculous and how amount. many thousands of beads go into that I think there's I think it's over 7,000 7,000 beads that each had individually drilled and then ground down into the proper shape. So, as you can see, that's why a lot of the Europeans, when they came here, they used wampum as a currency. Because it was so tedious and expensive to produce, um, they could trade it for something that was actually quite Mm -hmm. valuable because the Native Americans would want it. And so when you look at some of these wampum belts, to actually give a gift for a peace or a friendship or a treaty, uh, it was actually a very nice gift because there was a lot of time and energy not only to make it but you got to picture the people to catch these clams yeah clams and then transport the material up into the five nations territory because this stuff comes from the ocean it's not like they can produce them themselves Mm -hmm. so this is a very very expensive and lots of man and woman hours going into producing just a single wampum belt so uh, I could try and talk to you about how they built these. Uh, I tried to read it. I'd say uh, go and visit one of these Native American museums and have one of them tell you how to do it. Cause... Yeah, I was actually at um, a school a few weeks ago during Treaty Day for the Treaty of Canadagua, and there was a gentleman there. He lives in Rush, New York, and he reproduces wampum belts. And he uses clay beads because the wampum beads, he said, cost like a dollar a bead. And if we're talking about hundreds of beads just to make one of these belts, but he uses the clay ones and he makes these amazing reproductions. And so I'll put his website up uh, on Facebook or maybe on our website if you want to go look at his reproduction belts and he uses historical belts and recreates them. It's really quite amazing. Did you have anything else about belts, Caleb? Nope, that sounds good. Okay, what else did you have? Well, a lot I, of little odds and ends, Yeah, right? uh, I mean, this this episode gives us the ability to really talk about all different types of random technology and things like that. So as I was doing my research, I came across one that I thought was really interesting. And when you said this, I did not believe you. Yeah. I thought that it was something <laughs> that you totally made up or was from some hack website. Yeah, I, I called up Andrew and I said, hey, have you heard anything about this? But what I'm talking about is baby bottles and formula. That's right. We have some records and some, you know, fragments of ancient baby bottles. Specifically that the Seneca uh, were famous for inventing. And what they would do is they would take the lining um, of an intestine. Think of it just like, you know, you clean it all out. You would wash it. It's just, practically a balloon. Yeah. Or a, a tube. Just like, you know, it, it's used to package meat. And that's basically what they used it for. They would clean it out so you had a nice tube crimp one end and then you could put a a feather quill in the end of it clip it off clip the feather off so you just got that nice piece i heard that they could also use porcupine quills could they that's what you told me oh (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I'm picturing if this is going in a baby's mouth, they'd probably rather... Well, they, they'd crimp the barb <laughs> off the quill, of course. <laughs> they wouldn't just... Well, if I read that, it's probably true. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. Uh, but I do remember uh, being like a thick feather because it would be soft enough. And they would have their own infant formula. Uh, infant formula is very expensive. Andrew and I both have little children. And, you know, we buy the powder mix. Theirs was not powder. What they would do is they had a way to mix nuts with uh, milk or water or little bits of meat, and they could grind it up into a paste and put it in here. And they would use fruits too as well, right? Fruits, sure, anything. Throw it in there. And then you could put this in your infant's mouth, or, you know, as they're getting older, so they're ready to start eating real food, but not quite solid food. You could stick this little tube in there and squeeze the little... It's Gogurt! <laughs> the little intestine sack, and feed them that. And this is credited to the Seneca of the Five Nations. I'd never heard this before, and I came across this in my research, and I thought that was pretty cool. If anybody else has heard anything about this, feel free to, to send me. I couldn't find a lot about it, but I thought that was really cool. Well, let's talk about fire making. Now, to make fire, Caleb, you, they just went out and got their Zippo, or they just took two pieces of wood and rubbed them together, right? Yeah, they, they took a piece of wood and just rubbed it on a log so they made fire. Uh, that that's Some people think of Native Americans as cavemen which they were not. Cavemen rubbed sticks together to make fire. If, if that's even true, if because even we true. don't see any cavemen today, so we don't know. But if you look at any of the type of friction drilling fire techniques that the Iroquois used, very advanced, more advanced than any European fire-making ideas for what they had. And everybody kind of pictures the bow, right? Mm -hmm. You got the bow and you're rubbing it back and forth. That was one way to do it, but they actually had a much more advanced way to do that, and that was... Uh, a drill bow, you you could call it. A drill bow? Explain. Well, when I think of the drill bow, I think of the conventional going side to side with the bow. But this type of fire starting technique is called the pump drill. And that's a pretty good name for it because when you see it being done, you're pumping up and down and that's spinning the drill bit to cause the fire. And how that works is you have a stick with two counterweights on the bottom. And then you have a bow coming across the top. Instead of working the string side to side, you have a bow coming across the top. And you wrap the cord around. And then as you push down, it spins the bit. So the middle pole that's yes. going down with the pointed end with the kindling on the bottom. Now, because you have counterweights on the bottom, as you push down, it's going to spin that counterweight all the way around. It's co completely balanced on both ends. And then it will start wrapping the the bow back up so when you go down the string wraps around and then when you go back up it goes in the reverse yes. motion therefore you're just pushing your arms up and down up and down meanwhile up and down it doesn't matter the friction is still going for the central cylinder that's correct and this can be done with very little effort as opposed to just using a standard bow drill where you're going side to side back and forth and how tiring that can be and also you're trying to hold the top to keep pressure down to cause friction. This, you're working down, straight down and up as opposed to side to side. So you're getting all your body weight into it. And how quick could you light something doing this? I've seen some videos of people starting a fire in under 30 seconds with one of these. And I will post a link to our website. This is something that's mechanical, so it's hard for me to really explain, 
So if this is something you're interested in, I will post a video and some links on our Iroquois History and Legends Facebook and go ahead and watch one of these professionals do it. And I'm, I'm going to make one when I get a chance because they look really cool. What about just using flint and steel like all the colonialists did, Caleb? Wouldn't that be just as efficient? Yeah, picture... If, if anybody's tried this, it's not a very efficient way to make a fire. It can be done if you have very fine, dry tinder and you have a professional flint and steel box that you buy. But if you just picture rubbing two pieces of flint together or taking your metal hatchet and hitting it up against a piece of flint. You may get a spark here you, or there. Yeah, but you can not... get a spark, but it would be very difficult. And I'm sure there were some people that could do it, uh, but this would be a much easier and practical way to do it. Hmm. So I imagine they had smaller versions of these or maybe some flint and steel techniques when they were out moving around. But if you were in your village, you had one of these, these fire machines there that could do it. Mm -hmm. Caleb, why don't you talk about something that we loved to have growing up, being from a large family and living in a room with lots of other people? Yeah, Andrew and I, we, had, we there were seven of us children living in the house growing up. And we did not have seven bedrooms, so needless to say, a lot of us lived in the same room, especially us boys. And uh, so here's another interesting credit that goes to the Native Americans, and that is the bunk bed. So they're the ones to blame. <laughs> <laughs> and I did they actually have bunk beds at Ganondagon when you were there in the longhouse? They had. Um, they weren't set up as bunk beds, but they did have it so that it could be. So they had the, the one layer going across in the longhouse. So we mentioned before how longhouse was set up inside in our clan episode, I believe. Um, but they had one set going across all the way on the bottom. And then they had... It elevated off the floor because you don't want to sleep right on the floor and then they could also use it as storage underneath and then going up on top they had another layer that they could use as storage so you could use it as bunk beds or you could just use it for excess storage for food or drying other things but they would have uh, ladders at the longhouse they have there um, they just took logs and they, they would notch out the steps going up on the side so that you could climb up and down in the bunk bed style mm -hmm. But before contact, there really wasn't any European bunk beds. They got this idea from the Iroquois in their longhouses. That's amazing to think. Hey, let's do two beds on top of each other, and then we could save space. Well, no, the, let's, let's just be dirty and all sleep together. Yeah, the Indians understood saving space. You know, they were very efficient with storing and sleeping and cooking all in the longhouse. And I imagine, depending on the time of year, maybe in the winter you would want to sleep on the upper bunk... And use the lower rises. one for storage. Mm -hmm. And then in the in the summer, you would sleep in the lower and use the upper one. I don't know that, but that's just me speculating. But I imagine that could be very useful, depending on the time of year. One last thing I have, Caleb, is snowshoes. Have you ever been snowshoeing before? No, I've been invited, but it doesn't look like very much fun, so I've never done it. I've done it once. Um, we use the modern snowshoes, which have the aluminum frame and get your sneaker in there but uh native americans and this is really interesting almost every native american culture that had snow used snowshoes the snowshoes were definitely different among all the different nations and cultures depending on what kind of terrain you lived on was depending on how big the snowshoe would be um, up in the north where you get a lot of heavier snow you would have these really wide and really long ones to help you maneuver along the big snowdrifts. Interestingly, Eskimos did, or the Inuit did use snowshoes, but generally speaking, they didn't because it was mostly frozen tundra and you didn't get a lot of snow up there. 
Um, the Haudenosaunee tended to use smaller snowshoes, and the reasoning was generally they were walking through wooded areas, and if you've got a great big six-foot-long snowshoe, you're going to be bumping into stuff, and so you needed it for maneuverability. Once the Europeans get here, we mentioned in our Frozen Frenchman episode that um, they attempted to use snowshoes, but they didn't really know how to use them. It's not like you can just get out and walk on them. You really got to learn how to use it. Otherwise, you're just going to be falling around and flailing like a, a moron. But once the Europeans start using these snowshoes, it's going to become standard military combat to use them in winter terrain. And so we're going to see, especially in the French and Indian War, there's actually a whole battle called the Battle on Snowshoes. Did you have anything else to cover, Caleb? What did they make the snowshoes out of? Wood. Oh, cool. Yeah. And they would use leather straps and bands as oh. well. To... Okay. I was just curious. Yeah. I wasn't sure if they used anything special or... Yeah. Um, they did use... Um, the Algonquin would use a special kind of wood um, tamarack, generally, because it was rot-resistant to water. Tamarack. Now that you mention that name, that actually makes me think of our next episode. That's right. We're going to do a, a winter episode. It's not really a, a holiday or Christmas episode because that's what we're talking about. We thought we'd do a festive seasonal one. Uh, so we're going to try and pick some Native American stories that kind of will get you in the mood for the winter season. And uh, one of them includes Old Man Winter, or at least their version of him. And we are going to learn why conifer trees don't lose their needles, but all the other trees do. Including the tamarack. Yeah, the tamarack is a pine tree, but it loses its needles, which is very unique to the tamarack. So join us next week for that. That will be a lot of fun. Uh, in the meantime, thank you again to everyone. Uh, some things you could do to support us. One... If you use iTunes or have an inkling to use iTunes or even know what iTunes is, go on there and find us and hit the subscribe button. And if you don't know what iTunes is, you can ask your children and they can tell you what it is. Just subscribing or leaving us a review will really bump us up in the iTunes standings, which will allow more people to view us and potentially get the word out more so that we can get more listeners and educate more people. And as we've mentioned in the past, Leaving us an iTunes review gets you adopted into the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. And all true fans and members of Iroquois History and Legends want to be members of the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. It's a very prestigious select few of the chosen. That's true. So we'll put your username up on our website, and there it will remain. And also feel free to look us up on our website if we didn't mention. It's longhousepodcast.com. You can look us up on Facebook. You can now follow us on Twitter. You can listen to us on iHeartRadio. You can listen to us on Google Play. We have a Twitter? We've got a Twitter now. I've never posted anything on it. Uh, do you ever post things on it? I just started it. Oh, okay. So <laughs> you're not going to get much information. But going forward, Twitter. I, I hear that's a thing now. So follow us. Do you have anything else? Thank you, everybody. I hope you all have a great holiday season. We'll be seeing you soon.